0: Hi, everyone. This is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans Lindsey Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started hi everyone welcome back to this week in women in sustainability design the future thanks so much for joining us again this is Lindsay, and this is kira and we are back uh, for for another week um, with another amazing woman we're very excited about Um, but first off it's time to check in because it is a crazy day here in the bay area actually the entire west coast of US, (laughs) according to the satellite images. And we're basically in semi-darkness because of the smoke from the forest, from the wildfires that are blanketing, I think is the right, that's the right metaphor.
1: That's right. And it looks extremely unusually orange outside, at least where I am in Oakland. Um, And it seems like it's nighttime, which is just bizarre. I, I don't really think I've ever seen it look like this. I mean, I've never lived in a very polluted city, um, luckily, happily, um, but it is bizarre. Um, it, is a, it is a strange combination of factors that's happening. I guess it's the ash from the bear fire now and then the marine layer that is keeping that separate from us because it actually, we're not breathing all that. It's sort of separated yeah.
0: in a weird way. In other words, for those that don't live in the Bay Area, we have like a fog bank that's sort of weirdly (laughs) protecting us from the smoke to some degree. It's very eerie. It's, I mean, you know, we've been in wildfire season for a few weeks now, much earlier than it ever has been. So it's, uh, you know, to some degree, I think I woke up, I was talking to a friend about how it's It's feeling like the normal is is no longer expected or like you don't sort of anticipate things going back to normal. there's just an it's 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 really like a expectation that things will continue to not be yep, yep. like normal if that makes sense um I don't know if you're feeling that way. I think that's
1: exactly what it is like um I mean it's gotten the the comic side of it at this point is practically. You know where we're expecting locusts or frogs any minute yeah. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> i mean not, i don't want to make light of it the the fires are extremely serious and this is you know really it's it's bad for air quality but it's also i mean the evacuations and the injuries and the deaths are numerous so I, i'm not trying to make a joke out of it but it does the the degree of not normal is certainly extreme and it is you do kind of wake up thinking what next
0: What's, yeah. Happen now. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. I've been reading this book by Amitav Ghosh called *The Great Derangement*, which is a it's a nonfiction book that he wrote. Although he also writes some amazing fiction, and the book is it's actually sort of a book about and for the literary world. And he talks about how the literary world has. Tended to treat a lot of fiction writing that um, focuses on sort of catastrophic events as like lesser, um, lesser work that the it's this idea that he's drawing out that in his art form or his intellectual community, uh, the idea of catastrophe or you know big things happening that are somewhat unpredictable and somewhat unusual and unlikely like that all of that is relegated to the world of sci-fi and other things that you know it kind of makes it feel like that isn't really how we all are supposed to think about our lives yeah. uh, and he this is why he calls it the great derangement because despite all indicators that the world is continuing to progress in a direction that is less and less predictable and and more catastrophic, we all still seem to manage to convince ourselves that that is, you know, it, it is not how life is supposed to be. <laughs> it's kind of helping me, you know, intellectually think about how we all expect normality and yet <laughs> It's not a thing anymore. No, <laughs> yeah. that sounds that sounds pretty heavy, Lindsay. But uh, very, you know, <laughs> it, it is. We're we're also rewatching Lost in my house, so that's <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, it's very entertaining. Uh, yeah, I I think I think we've I think we found a better balance these days of being able to go easy on ourselves. Good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. What else is going on for you? Anything exciting? Anything that you've been enjoying? You told me you've been writing postcards.
1: I have been. I'm feeling the election can't come soon enough in some ways, but I'm also quite concerned about many aspects of it, not least of which is the Electoral College and how that drives our situation. Um, So yes, I've been writing postcards and trying to balance these swings of of optimism and pessimism, that that this not normal environment seems to, uh, it's just such a roller coaster in an interesting way, um, intellectually speaking. But in it, it is a bit much sometimes. So it, but it's it's good. There are positives out there, many of them coming from within the um, sustainable building community, um, and and those keep me focused and moving forward. So that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, I do I do think we are capable of change and forward motion even in and perhaps motivated by increasing
0: catastrophes. so (laughs) i have to hold on to that 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 is what it seems like is is, uh is giving us some of that opportunity that window of opportunity right now so yeah we got to take it but yeah no i feel the same way still it's still very motivating and 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 there's still a lot of, there's just a lot of great work getting done out there and a lot to be inspired by. And I'm, I'm impressed every day that people manage to like get up and do the work that they're doing in the midst of all of this. So that's also fun to watch as new things come out. Well, uh, that is a very good way to introduce our guest today because she's a really amazing and inspiring person. We have Jenny Carney with us. Hey, Jenny. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining. We're super excited to have you. Um, So Jenny is a VP at at WSP. It's a global services firm that focuses on the built environment. Uh, but Also, she does a ton of other things. She's the chair of a carbon drawdown advisory board for Illinois Green. Um, And she's also the co-founder of a nonprofit dedicated to accelerating the adoption of sustainability best practices in existing buildings using the BIT building program, which I am a very big fan of and got a chance to help a little bit with, which is now housed at the at South Face in Atlanta. And I think of Jenny as somebody who's been working in this very specific, um, very underrepresented uh, facet of the green building movement for a long time, and so we really wanted to have Jenny on to talk more about this part of the world that should not be small, um, because in fact it is not small in the building in regards to the actual building stock, and that is the world of existing buildings. Um, So Jenny, we're hoping you can give us a little bit of a quick sense of your path and how you got involved in the green building world Uh, and how it is that you came to focus on existing buildings.
2: Sure. So uh, I definitely, I think, took, uh, as is typical for people of my age or our age, it wasn't just a a straight line into this realm. Uh, But my my sort of background has been in uh, environmental science and carbon cycling dynamics at an ecosystem scale. Uh, And I sort of somewhat accidentally, following graduate school, uh, had a chance to uh, join a nonprofit, a small, very small environmental nonprofit that kind of peculiarly was in charge of developing the lead for existing building rating system and running the pilot on behalf of USGBC. So it's not like I, I sort of deliberately set out to join the green building movement or to focus Uh, on existing buildings. But I think my, uh, my sort of background in field science and uh, kind of understanding empirical data and uh, relationships that are degrees of separation apart has been helpful in this space. I also always kind of think about how Nobody would talk about existing buildings as existing buildings unless they were building designers, because for the people who use buildings, they just think of them as buildings.
0: Very true. (laughs) I love that part. It's always hard to explain to people um, why do we use the word existing, but it is, right? It's all a question of where you're coming from. Um, I remember that. I guess I met you right at the time when you were first getting into this buildings industry, which I really didn't appreciate at the time, but I think it's, it is super cool to understand that that, I don't know, that you had the background that you had. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that in terms of what you feel like you've taken with you from getting into sort of environmental work in the first place, and whether you feel like connected to that still.
2: Yeah, certainly, and I think the, The extent to which I feel connected to it, I guess, kind of ebbs and flows over time. And more recently, I feel like I've been in a place where I could sort of influence the projects around me to deliver me back to that place. Uh, But in any case, I think that some of the elements that have stuck with me, you know, really come from a sort of like agnostic position of what is the truth behind the cause and effect, you know, which I think is common amongst folks who have a science background is you're really just like super curious about the empirical reality and don't have as much stake in the specific design or specific solution that you've maybe theorized as uh, being relevant. And so I think it's been helpful for me in this space to be uh, very open to progress in whatever forms it comes from, whether that's inventing a new gadget or training a workforce to uh, be more effective at a small and seemingly minor detail, like what adds up to a significant outcome, you know, it could be any of those things. And, uh, and I think especially being trained as an ecologist, like being, Uh, curious about the individual and the sort of, you know, in concert contributions of different aspects and not having a predetermined judgment about the worth of them is something that I feel like is, is with me every day. I'm also really good at labeling units when working with numbers. There's so much, especially as we shift towards more performance metrics around existing buildings, there's so much Bad data practices and I wish everybody could sort of go back to uh, some training about the importance of developing like clean protocols and Dealing with kind of data quality on a regular basis because a lot of the metrics that we're leaning on Are not really up to the challenge because our diligence around data quality kind of stinks uh, at a whole
0: Yeah, it sure does. We could have a whole podcast about about that.
2: (laughs) Label data people. It's not that hard and you'll thank yourself later. (laughs) 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 Pro tips
0: from Jenny Carney. Well, okay, so cool. This is great. This is a good start. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about uh, the different hats that you're wearing these days. I mentioned a couple of them and just introducing you, but do you want to talk about what you spend your time doing and, you know,
2: maybe why it is that you do what you do. Uh, Yeah, I can, I can give it a shot. So, uh, of course, much of my day is filled up with my day job, uh, which uh, I'm a part of WSP's sustainability, energy, and climate change team. And this has a interesting link back to, you know, existing buildings, actually, because Uh, the core of my team really focuses on supporting corporate sustainability teams in kind of establishing their goals and targets and developing kind of programs that across, you know, business operations will move the needle on different sustainability indicators. And so a lot of companies have a significant real estate component, either as their primary business or auxiliary to their business. And so I, I focus a lot on working with with real estate portfolios, either corporate uh, real estate or uh, commercial real estate. And so it's not just individual buildings. So certainly I, I do work a lot with specific facilities, teams, and so on, but it's also looking kind of holistically across a real estate portfolio at the uh, kind of environmental uh, impact and what the mechanisms for uh, reducing those impacts or, you know, introducing regenerative outcomes looks like. And uh, day-to-day I've, you know, there's of course like loads of different client, clients in the mix, but some of the ones that are doing the most aggressive efforts around sustainability are are bigger tech companies. And so that's been wonderful because they'll actually... They're super ambitious. They're confident that if they focus on something and invest in it, they will kind of arrive at an intended outcome. And so more so than lots of other work that I've been involved in has been some really interesting efforts related to tech companies, including like zero waste data centers and in integrating environmental justice into renewable energy procurement. So some of it's getting a bit far afield from just building operations, but some of it's still really rooted in that space and that legacy of working a lot with building operators. Uh, So that's one hat. And then, you know, I've always sort of felt compelled to uh, be in the mix with different nonprofits that are trying to create momentum around sustainability as well. So you you mentioned uh, bit building, which it was really an attempt to distill kind of essential operations and maintenance best practices into a really accessible bucket so that not just Class A facilities, which are the primary kind of users of lead for existing buildings, but other types of buildings can start to move down that path as well. Uh, and that's really, uh, really sort of like a passion of mine is sort of democratizing access to green building benefits. And so I've been able through various side projects to kind of keep, keep some movement in that direction and some work in my kind of portfolio that is oriented towards that. That is awesome, Jenny. Um, I love
1: that, the way you put that, democratizing access to green building benefits. I think that's powerful and exciting. And there's a lot, there's certainly a lot of room for movement in that area um, that's inspiring. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, some specific projects that you're working on right now that you're excited
2: about. Sure. So a couple of them are Chicago-based, which is which is where I am also based. Uh, thankfully, the sky is not orange in the Midwest today. And through my involvement with Illinois Green and a couple other local nonprofits, there's really this like neat ecosystem of uh, kind of green building and sustainability groups in Chicago that have been pretty open to this idea of democratizing the benefits of green buildings. And so two projects that I've been involved with, uh, both that leverage the BIT framework. Uh, one is a a pilot project that is primarily about workforce development. And in this case, uh, essentially a cohort of public housing residents were recruited to go through uh, a training curriculum focused on bit building and kind of energy efficiency planning in uh, multifamily residential. And of that cohort, uh, the the sort of program funding accommodates hiring two or three of those folks to basically be a resource to uh, the sustainability team that runs that real estate portfolio. And so the hope I have no reason to believe won't pan out, is that uh, it's both a, a sort of employment path for the participants to kind of on-ramp them into exploring a career in facilities management, uh, but it also sort of leverages uh, sort of peer-to-peer influence, as well as, you know, the firsthand experience of public housing residents to try to introduce operational best practices in, you know, what's honestly like a resource constrained arena, but a lot of what those uh, bit aids, as they're called, can can bring into the fold is just extra capacity around planning and implementing projects and also engaging other residents in kind of pro-sustainability behavior. Uh, So it's been, we just wrapped up the delivery of the the trainings, which all had to be transferred to online, which is its own, you know, kind of dilemma, how, how best to provide what's fundamentally hands-on training over a virtual uh, platform. But the, you know, I was really impressed by the cohort of recruits. Their sort of real world ability to kind of think of applying building science into the context of uh, public housing operations was there, they just had a lot of intuitive insights around that. That was really impressive. That's really cool. Um, what I love about that too is it, I feel like
1: um, there is so much that those fields, building science and related fields can learn from that kind of intelligence too, that the the sort of the sharing and opening up of not only jobs, but in sort of intelligence, the flow of the intelligence across those uh, groups of people is, is really powerful.
2: I see it as really kind of, you know, maybe opposite of the worst traditions of the design realm where all of the people are imaginary and they behave perfectly and they don't <laughs> want anything that's beautiful or pristine. And so this was really kind of opposite, where it's like, we know every which way that things can go sideways between intent and outcome, and Mm -hmm. we're going to face those things and work in the context of them, which I always find, you know, much more satisfying and closer to delivering the intended results than, you know, having kind of blinders on about what comes downstream of any one person's ideas or contributions.
1: Absolutely. It's there's a whole wealth of information that happens in the feedback loops, even of like a building's first year of operation, for example, that is effectively our industry doesn't capture that, you know, and this is about that area, you know, those the all the intelligence that's happening in that window, not just the first year, but just lifetime of operation. I think there's a lot there. That's really exciting. There's so much
2: there. I've been harping on it for ages. And, you know, what I think is actually starting to do the trick a tiny bit is for designers who uh, actually have a, a net zero building where they're kind of on the hook for performance outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's a few folks in Chicago who are in that position. And one of them was telling me, that she's, you know, she feels like a farmer, because every day she's like, you know, uh, fretting about whether the sun is shining, or how much the wind is blowing, (laughs) and I was like, yes, finally, (laughs) like, great, this, this is what it means to be beholden to performance outcomes in a real way, you, you're just attuned to minutia, and learning a ton, I think, she has been uh, given that project.
1: That's fantastic.
2: I love I love that.
1: Um, I wanted to ask also um, about maybe what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life. And this could be anything from sort of on the personal side, like mentoring people or or even learning how to act like a boss or the more professional, like a specific role at an organization or something.
2: So I think for me, and this becomes manifest in some specific examples, which I can share, but the theme or the elements of my work that I feel most proud of is where I've been able to uh, use whatever position of influence that I have uh, to, uh, I guess, layer in kind of more perspectives than would have happened otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so the environmental justice and renewable energy project I mentioned earlier is a good example of that, uh, where it's, you know, I have a network at, at this point where I can kind of explore mashups of different groups of people and perspective uh, to see if, if they'll lead to useful outcomes that are more, I I guess, closer to our aspirational beliefs around sustainability. And so, uh, you know, maybe it's like, it's not that much of a risk. And so maybe it's not so courageous, but I feel really good about uh, translating my influence not into like slightly, you know, better compensation or whatever, but translating it into projects affecting or benefiting audiences that wouldn't otherwise uh, be in the mix and kind of elevating those audiences and those perspectives. It just feels like such a better use of power than whatever else I could imagine. And not that it's like a huge amount of power, but it's enough to do some interesting stuff.
1: No, I think that's great. I love the notion, too, of that power coming from both your network and also your creativity about those mashups you were describing. I think that's really terrific.
0: Yeah, and it takes work, too, which just I think um, you can tell that it's from the heart and I appreciate that, Jenny. It's super cool. So, okay. I want to talk to you about this thing that we have talked about a lot over the years, but hoping that our listeners will enjoy it about the evolution of, of the work on existing buildings over the years. And I think it's specifically about, you know, market transformation tools and lead and these kinds of things and how we've addressed existing buildings. Can you talk about where you think we are in the process of effectively <laughs> creating structures to
2: improve existing buildings, what what have we done well? What have we not done well? Well, we're we're either at the nadir or the precipice of great triumph, or possibly both. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I think that any voluntary standard uh, can only go so far, and you know, at best, it's sort of a proof point and it creates enough momentum to give way to kind of policy or regulatory aspects. And so we haven't really turned the corner fully on that when it comes to uh, sustainability in existing buildings. Uh, There's definitely some bright spots. Uh, You know, I think that the energy benchmarking and disclosure policies that have been adopted by a lot of Uh, U.S. cities and states are a really important base layer. And if you think about it, a very sort of fascinating encroachment onto private property rights, which like as Americans, that's a sort of, you know, sacred territory. And Mm -hmm. so imposing new obligations on uh, private building owners is a pretty zany thing, actually. But anyways, like in their most basic form, those policies are really simply about, you know, sharing environmental performance data. And there's a lot happening from investors also kind of pressing towards that endpoint. But the sort of idea that data will magically, you know, translate into emissions reductions, you know, is not gonna be the case. So we need the next generation policy levers to come into play and, you know, New York City uh, now has a, a version of that with, you know, what's essentially like a, a carbon cap and a fee that is designed to incent owners to invest in energy efficiency instead of paying that tax. So hopefully we'll, we'll see kind of more in that direction. Uh, on the sort of voluntary certification front, you know, I feel like uh, there's a lot of offerings out there that, don't really usher in actual change or continuous improvement in buildings, but they do potentially offer a nice kind of marketing angle. And for me, a like big disappointment has been to kind of reckon with the fact that there's lots of folks who work alongside us in this space, and they maybe don't actually give a shit about whether the emissions are down in a measurable way. They, they're kind of fine with the shortcut versions and maybe not super critical of whether proxy measures are appropriate or a distraction. Um, so that's always, a I always wrestle with that and get agitated about it and swear about it. Um, and I hope that we can all just kind of sashay to the side of let's actually make meaningful transformations if we're bothering to engage in this work, we might as well go whole hog, you know?
0: Yeah, that was, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I guess I've talked about it a bit on the podcast that I I read a report that the UN had put out a couple of years ago about how the building sector is doing at sort of being in line with Paris goals. And, um, And it was pretty scathing. It basically said like, we're not keeping up. Uh, you know, and I don't know that anyone would be surprised by that, but I think you're right that we hear, we hear way too much rhetoric about how we are essentially doing the, doing the work, we're getting it done, um, you know, and that it has a lot to do with the fact that the definition that those people are using of success is not really that related to the question of global emissions It's it's unfortunately too far removed from that ultimate goal that we're working on. I get worked up about that.
2: Yeah, Um, I mean, atmospheric carbon doesn't give a shit about our good intentions. Exactly. Um, And (laughs) I I remember seeing this kind of shocking statistic uh, a year or so ago where US uh, investments in energy efficiency have actually been declining. And we're declining at the same time as the largest economic expansion in any of our lifetimes. And so it's kind of crazy that we feel or we can feel confident that we're getting it done when any kind of indicator uh, that we take a look at suggests, you know, we're maybe not really putting our money where our mouth is, or we're not doing things that are, are really translating into the important outcomes.
0: Exactly. Well, so I guess a part of this in my mind is about the ways in which we define ourselves as a, as a group of people and what we're working on. And so I wanna ask you, whether you feel like you are a part of a movement, whether you feel a distinction between what we think of as the green building industry versus a, a movement that you, you know, do you, it, that you may feel a part of? Uh, and just how you think about that for yourself?
2: Yeah, so I think of myself as part of a movement for climate action. Uh, and sometimes the green building industry has been aligned with that. And sometimes it's not. Uh, but I would never conflate the two. As being one and the same, and I would sort of argue that any industry association or industry convener, you know they have a hard time staying true to mission over time, and checks and balances are one of the most important things, and you know I think we can can check the green building industry and see how well it's contributing to the climate change climate action movement, and, and that's part of our job if we're kind of affiliated with both. Absolutely. That's really well put, Jenny.
1: I, I think that's incredibly clear, too. So in that context, as far as the movement for climate action that you feel that you are a part of, where
2: did you think we would be in 2020 as a movement? Oh, well, I mean, I thought based on the Jetsons that I would have a hovercraft by now, for one (laughs) obviously Uh, (laughs) clearly it'd be like a low emissions hovercraft so the i remember kind of in the 90s uh before climate change had become as politicized as it is now it feeling like a daunting problem but one we hadn't kind of turned our full attention to and I guess what I would have hoped had happened is that we sort of like had turned our full attention to it and brought like some kind of can-do attitude and made some real progress. I I think that it's, I don't know, it's pretty horrible where we are at the current moment uh, in terms of not even having within the context of the U.S. Uh, functioning kind of common language around how to deal with an existential problem. But I also think that, you know, we could be in sort of a dark moment that precedes uh, a hopeful kind of transformation of where we're at culturally and socially. So I guess I find solace in the idea that, you know, we don't have to be on a linear path here. You know, there can be big step forward, and steps back as well, that are yep. still kind of along a path to progress. But I'm pretty sure I would have thought we would be in a better place than we are. And, you know, people, always, people like to say that, like the models, you know, never predicted that the effects of climate change would happen so quickly or so dramatically. And, you know, I don't think that's true. There was always a dark side of the models, they just weren't reported on. So we've right. we've sort of, diluted ourselves into best case scenarios uh, along the way, and now are, are pretending we didn't know the things that we knew. This is not a hopeful <laughs> a hopeful statement to end on, but I do think it's like it's a part of getting to the point where we can actually face uh, what we're looking at and so I guess in that sense it is hopeful
1: Sure no, I think it is hopeful I mean that's that's the one sort of bizarre thing about the pandemic, to the extent that one sees that as some kind of on-ramp or, or moment of clarity about how, how upon this upon us this really is, is that maybe the need for speed and you know fast adaptation will will be recognized and and maybe we can pick up the pace. Um, so there's hope in there. I see a little hope in there. Um, well, I'm just wondering if what you see as the major progress areas in the world of sustainability in buildings? I mean, I know we talked about the existing building advances a few minutes ago, or I guess lack of areas of
2: progress if you want to do the flip side. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, areas of progress, there are, there are definitely some real ones. And I think they're, you know, who's kind of leading is not necessarily who we might've expected to lead. Uh, But like I said, I think that there are some corporations that are really sort of pioneering important work at scaling uh, sustainability across their, their operations and across geographies. And so that's definitely like a kernel of hope is just how ambitious corporate sustainability commitments have become. And then I think there's, there's lots of other kind of progress that is being investor-driven. And those are, those are two forces that I think can do the trick at getting us close to a tipping point. And then, you know, I wouldn't mind if, you know, some good policy swooped in to, uh, to help seal the deal. <laughs> But that, it does not seem impossible that that could happen within the next, you know, five or 10 years. It's, it certainly does seem possible and maybe more possible now than it did, you know, a half a decade ago.
1: Absolutely. Well, see, that that's, we're already on an upswing here of positivity. Very well done. Um, <laughs> I think I wanted to also ask about uh, who you're most inspired by these days in terms of leaders They could be climate leaders or built environment or corporate leaders if, if those are the ones
2: that's a good question and i think with contemporary leaders i i don't know if i'm just obstinate but i have a hard time like you know uh settling on uh like actual human beings that i think are currently uh in the mix and in part i think it's because I know for every public figure, there's probably dozens of people behind them. And the the folks who are the most innovative or hardest working are maybe not the the sort of figurehead. But somebody I've been sort of leaning on a lot for inspiration in the last half year or so is um actually James Baldwin. Uh so I've I've assigned myself a little project of of reading or rereading uh, some of his work, I love a good essayist and i think I think why I'm compelled towards his work right now is because he just sort of epitomized like the idea of a complicated relationship with America that you know is loving but also deeply complex, and he did an interesting job of like. Protecting himself from the worst aspects of our society while also trying to to facilitate progress and that really speaks to me
1: absolutely
2: yeah, such a good one I totally agree
0: i've had I've had a little bit of James Baldwin in my life in the past year, and the, I think part of what it feels so important or i don't know somehow really helpful for me is the ways in which he explains things so clearly that he has seen and experienced that, that I have just been sort of more recently or uh, otherwise uh, in, in a less clear way identifying or seeing. Um, and his it's true, it has a lot to do with, with America and with the stories we tell ourselves. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, he's he's an incredible one. I appreciate, yeah, just even the the answer that you gave about totally. <laughs> I love that
1: notion of the complicated relationship too, because it has something to do with being able to have two conflicting thoughts at the same time. That whole thing, <laughs> which yeah. is, seems so
0: relevant right now, on so many fronts. <laughs> uh, that is a very good note to end on, Jenny. Um, but we, with the with the great shout out to james baldwin so thank you for that and thanks for being with us today
2: uh well it's my pleasure uh i'm pretty sure this is my first ever podcast yes you Um. did
0: great Um yeah no it's it's um it, it's funny i think actually your name was one of those names that's come up a few times uh amongst friends and those of us in the movement as someone that we all wanted to hear from wanted to hear what was on your mind and how you're thinking about uh the work that we all do so um i know that we have a lot of folks who will be really happy to that you that you took the plunge into being a podcast guest uh so <laughs> uh thanks and uh we are excited to see what you do next um so with that that is it for us this week on women and sustainability design the future thanks again to acuity for hosting and to you all our listeners please leave us a review on apple it really helps it helps people find us thanks again and stay safe see you next week